Hello, friends. Welcome back to Currently Workshopping, a show where we work through the perils and frisson of being alive together. This is the last episode of the season and this year, obviously, and I thought it was only fitting to go back to the beginning where we all started to talk about the future of my stupidly or maybe not stupidly having quit my nine to five or more accurately 10 to 10 to be an influencer. Basically, is it time to sell out? And really, what does that even mean in this context? Is it always a bad thing when creators and artists sell out? Well, I don't really know, which is why I decided to devote this episode to investigating all of these questions by diving into three artists who themselves struggled with this thorny issue of selling out. The rock legend Kurt Cobain, the novelist Jonathan Franzen, and the YouTuber Gabby Dunn. For each, I'll give a brief history of their touch points with selling out in their respective fields, speculate, and I do mean speculate here because I didn't talk to any of them, speculate about how they might have felt about selling out, and then try to synthesize some takeaways from their stories for myself and maybe the broader world. But before we get into it, if you've enjoyed my content and want to keep up with my projects now that the season of currently workshopping is coming to an end, please subscribe to my Substack and follow me on Instagram, both linked below. I'm putting together some new endeavors, which I'm really excited about and overall I just want to be able to keep in touch with you guys even if it's not through this screen. I never would have thought that sharing my thoughts would be interesting to really anyone but I found researching and formulating ideas for y'all to be one of the most enriching activities. It's given me the opportunity to really explore topics and ideas that I've always had fleeting thoughts about but wasn't able to explore in more depth back when I was working full-time and honestly just for that I am so grateful. Okay, okay, before I get all misty-eyed and emotional, let's just dive in. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was meeting with another creator friend. She has a much larger platform than I do, and we got onto the subject of how we were monetizing because that's always a popular discussion topic when creators get together. She asked me how I was doing on monetization, and I had to tell her that honestly, I really hadn't monetized much. I was living primarily off of my savings, and depending on how the advance for my book shook out, I was low-key planning on looking for part-time work or contract work in January because I didn't really want to be in a position where I had to take every single brand deal that I was offered. Basically, every creator's nightmare was happening to me. I had quit my corporate job for self-employment, and it was turning out that self-employment was more challenging than I had mentally prepared myself for. And I had mentally prepared myself for a lot of challenge already. Now, she's one of the most business savvy creators I know, and she was honestly shocked. She was like, why haven't you sold out? Take those brand deals, make those clickbait viral videos, sell out, sell out. And that was really how we ended the call with her egging me to sell out. I'm not gonna lie, I have thought about what it would be like to hop on trending topics more, like celebrity lawsuits as they occur, or take on every single brand deal in my inbox. There's definitely something appealing about doing that, right? Like having a formula, a rule, which you all know I love so much, for how I should act in this mildly bizarre situation that I've now found myself in. If I knew that my sole directive was to maximize present revenue, then it's clear how that should be tackled. But obviously that isn't my sole directive because if it were, then I should have probably just tried way harder at getting an investment banking internship in college and then gone into private equity or a hedge fund. Or barring that as impossible, I should just pack everything up and go back to big law with its predictable annual compensation bumps. Point is, maximizing present revenue clearly isn't my sole motivation here, but at the same time, I'm 31, I wanna have kids in the next few years, I wanna be able to provide for them and pay for college and grad school if they wanna go. There's just going to be a lot of expenses in the future, and I don't really have the luxury of time to figure out how to provide an income for myself as I would have had back when I was 22. 
I don't regret becoming a lawyer because it was the only way I could achieve financial security for myself at the time. But at the same time, damn, instead of 10 years to figure things out, I have what, like two? And that's pretty terrifying. So I know I can't be all idealistic about art and ideals and principles, but also what, like I'm just supposed to abandon all those? Wasn't the whole point of pursuing a more creative endeavor to actually care somewhat about art and ideals and principles? This whole question of how to earn an income creating things is what led me to researching and reading about what being an artist meant in the modern era, which was the springboard for my first episode about whether it's stupid to quit a nine to five to become an influencer or creator or writer or whatever creative job people might be thinking of doing. And as I wind down this year and think about what projects I want to invest in next year, I do feel this crushing panic to sell out because I have such a scarcity mindset when it comes to money. In classic fashion, as I try to think through what I should do for myself, I started looking at, duh, everyone else around me. Even though I know I should focus more on myself and ignore what others are doing, it seems stupid of me to not at least take a cursory look around me, right? Like what were other creators' strategies when it came to this ideals versus money tension? How did they choose when to sell out if they sold out at all? It's not so much that I wanted to copy them, but I just felt like I wanted to hear something, anything, to use as the starting point for my own thinking. This was actually something that happened a lot at work too. Like I realized that one of the most effective things that I could do as an associate was to give partners something to respond to. I didn't know as much as they did or have as much experience as they did obviously, but by proposing a solution on email or sending them a document to look at, it really sped up the entire process of getting things done. Because I think we as humans just find it easier to respond to something, comment on something, rather than conjure something out of nothing. Like, I do think that one of the reasons I made for a good associate was because I always proposed a process and gave partners something to look at. I didn't just send them something, ask them, what should we do? Sometimes I was wrong or off, sure, but I think as long as the tone is trying to be helpful and not like dictating, supervisors and bosses really appreciate it. It's like getting dinner with a group of friends and it's always nice when someone actually takes charge and suggests a place, you know? So along those lines, I was like, Okay, I don't know what I should do when it comes to this ideals versus money divide, when it comes to selling out. So let's look into what other people did. My first stop was obviously Kurt Cobain. His quote from a 1992 interview with Rolling Stone was frequently quoted in most of the articles about selling out that I read. The interview is iconic for many reasons, but one of them, I think, is because Cobain appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone for the story wearing a DIY t-shirt that said, Corporate magazines still suck. Like, clearly he had the topic of selling out, and what that means, and how he felt about it, and what it meant that he was the cover story for Rolling Stone on his mind. In the interview, he even says, I don't blame the average 17-year-old punk rock kid for calling me a sellout. I understand that. And maybe when they grow up a little bit, they'll realize there's more things to life than living out your rock and roll identity so righteously. The way he says that, you'd think he was significantly older than 17, but he was only 25. At the same time, he had an infant daughter whom he was fighting for custody of and also struggled with drug addiction for all of his adult life. Really just this perfect representation of what it means to be both young and old, successful and a mess, responsible and irresponsible. All of these contradictions and battles that he was waging internally. And among those internal battles which he waged was this discomfort, I guess, with selling out. The reporter who wrote that Rolling Stone story, Michael Azerod, ended up befriending Cobain after the interview, and Azerod recalls being invited by Cobain for a business dinner involving the quote-unquote grown-ups, which was the term Cobain used to refer to all of the business executives involved with the band. I'm guessing like 
agents in various realms, managers, publicists, label execs, all of that. And Cobain was not happy to be at that dinner. He didn't respond much when people spoke to him, ordered only a slice of cake instead of real food, and then came back from the bathroom after a long time, obviously high. And that is just, that is just so heartbreaking. I don't know. Azeroth thought that Cobain getting high at that dinner was some sort of self-destructive protest. But protest against what? Material wealth, mainstream success, being in the public eye so much? And that's a hard thing with the term selling out, because it's clear that Cobain was struggling with something, but it's unclear which part of selling out bothered him so much. Cobain apparently hated getting his photo taken, didn't want to ride a limo to Nirvana's appearance on Saturday Night Live, and railed about Pearl Jam in another magazine interview, saying that he would love to be erased from his association with that band and other corporate bands like the Nymphs and a few other felons. He said he felt a duty to warn the kids of false music that's claiming to be underground or alternative, that they were just jumping on the alternative bandwagon. This is pure speculation on my part, but I think there was some sort of dissonance between who Cobain thought he was in his head and the who that was living his life after Nirvana got big. I mean, he dropped out of high school. His mother kicked him out of the house after Cobain chose music over getting a job. He was homeless and slept on friends' couches and once even lived under a bridge. He was a repeat vandal, spray painting words on trucks and banks. His favorite words included queer, God is gay, and abort Christ. I can't imagine, if that's the version of you that you had in your head, how you could square that with selling millions of albums, going to fancy restaurants with executives in suits, hearing about news shows criticizing your character and calling your life drug-infested, getting hassled by fans. It's just, yeah. An unfortunate tale of success getting out of hand, new pressures that one is unprepared for. On a much smaller scale, it kind of reminds me of people posting TikToks, right? Not expecting them to go mega viral, like Couch Guy or Bella Porch's original M to the B. You're just living your life one day until it's all of a sudden impossible to live that life. And sure, maybe you did want some audience acceptance, some success, because after all, we all have bills to pay and people to look out for, but there's a point at which getting chosen, being anointed, creates this version of yourself that's bigger than you, and probably much more different than you. Some celebrities, I'm thinking Beyonce, Taylor Swift, handle this duality really well, but others seem to strain under the pressure. I'm really glad Cobain's fame wasn't during the era of social media, to be honest, because I can't even imagine how hard our era of constant posting and 24 hours news cycles would have been on him. In light of all that, it's fascinating to reread his famous Rolling Stone quote because on some level, it seems that Cobain was trying to convince himself that what he was doing was okay, that there were more things to life, to his life, than living out his rock and roll identity. But I think more telling is a quote from Azarad's book about Nirvana in which Cobain says, I wish nobody ever knew what my real name was so I could someday be a normal citizen again. I guess what I take away from Cobain personally is that unintentionally selling out is the worst thing one can do. Like, it's one thing to sell out because you have other things in your life that are important to you that you want to care for, but it's a whole other matter to either sell out unintentionally or sell out but regret doing so the whole time after the fact. I don't think this is unique to being a musician, although this happens to musicians, but in every career, it's possible to be seen as a sellout, right? Even in law, you kind of have this purest form of law, which is legal aid, public defense, helping the little guy. And then you have corporate lawyers in the colloquial sense, right? These lawyers who represent corporations and tend to earn more money than their peers who represent individuals. 
And the most heart-wrenching place to be, in my opinion, is the lawyer who wanted to do legal aid but winds up being a corporate lawyer. And if there's no way to get out of that or no way for that person to accept themselves as a corporate lawyer, then going to work every day is miserable. It just is, no matter how much money you're making, because it is miserable trying to be someone who you don't believe you are. Of course, we all have different tolerances for that identity dissonance. Maybe you're okay with it for a few weeks, a few months, a few years, particularly if you have some goal like paying off your student loans or mortgage or saving for your children's college funds. But eventually, if there isn't a larger purpose of this identity dissonance, you'll start feeling it. This is why journaling is so valuable and so often vaunted as a productivity and optimization tactic, because the act of forcing yourself to pay attention to yourself and how you feel is a really effective way of identifying identity dissonance and proactively fixing it. I've been trying to journal a lot more and it did help me identify that, for example, I don't enjoy recording myself, which is funny because I do it all the time, but everything related to filming, adjusting white balance, setting up the tripod, putting on some makeup so I don't appear too ghastly on screen, even remembering to charge my camera just sucks the energy out of me, makes me feel like I'm not the purest form of myself. And that's a good insight to have, you know, to keep in mind that a lifetime of filming myself will probably lead me to identity dissonance and I should probably do something with my life that doesn't involve filming myself all the time. Okay, the next person I studied was Jonathan Franzen, the author of the novel The Corrections. So Franzen's novel was picked for Oprah's book club, which I found out is basically like the biggest portend of commercial success. Franzen, however, was really, really open with the media about his ambivalence at being selected. In an interview with a Seattle newspaper, the Post-Intelligencer, Franzen said, that Oprah selection will probably not sit well with the writers I hang out with and the readers who have been my core audience. He also told the Miami Herald that he felt muddled about the Oprah pick, especially the logo's quote unquote, corporate branding. His statements were so, well, classist for one, and also not PR friendly, I guess, that Oprah contemplated canceling Franzen's appearance on her show, which eventually did end up happening. Franzen ended up writing Oprah a personal letter of apology at his publisher's request, and his publisher's publicity chief had to hire a media coach for Franzen. Again, we see someone who truly sees themselves as an artiste to be quite disdainful of potential commercial success, although I suspect Franzen probably would have been okay with it had his book like won the Pulitzer or something. It wasn't so much that he didn't want commercial success. Franzen felt quite loyal to his publisher and wanted to add to his publisher's sales, but he said, and I quote, Having gotten there with my own steam, I felt a certain resistance to the boost that the Oprah book club selection would represent. And there we have it, being an Oprah's book club pick created identity dissonance in Franzen, even though part of him wanted to sell out for the sake of his publisher. His issue really was that he never reconciled those two parts of himself. He kept on going back and forth between wanting to do it for his publisher, but also not wanting to do it for himself. And I get that, I, I really do. A lot of the immigrant experience, I think, is navigating this tension between what my parents wanted for me and what I wanted for me. And if I ever took an action for them, majoring in economics, for example, I really had like to be okay with that, get okay with that, or else I would just spend my entire life resenting them for affecting my life choices. When ultimately, I'm still the person who decides things in my life, right? So it's kind of unfair of me to choose to do something for someone else's sake and then blame them or guilt them or even weirdly undermine that choice because it's not what I actually wanted. I feel that's what got Franzen in this whole Oprah debacle. He wanted to sell out, but then didn't feel comfortable committing to selling out. 
or maybe just wasn't media trained enough to think twice about how offensive some of his statements were about Oprah's book club. Either way, it wasn't good. I recently read this wonderful profile of Colleen Hoover in the New York Times, and some of the comments were just chock full of people like Franzen, who were dismissive of Hoover's books and the fact that so many people read them. Like somehow, it's a bad thing to be that popular, to write something that appeals to so many people, even people who don't normally read many books. Funnily enough, the New York Times book review had reviewed Franzen's novel and noted that the corrections had, quote unquote, just enough novel of paranoia touches so Oprah won't assign it and ruin Franzen's street cred. This is clearly a self-perpetuating problem. Franzen didn't want to be an Oprah's book club pick because he thought it would represent something bad, and that belief was bolstered by the New York Times book review. Just really a circle jerk of elitism over here. There doesn't seem to really be any new lesson from Franzen, except if you're going to sell out, like commit to selling out publicly. Cobain was deeply conflicted about selling out too, but Cobain did commit to selling out. Like he committed hook, line, and sinker, the whole nine yards, the entire confection. I don't know. It's just a really funny situation where a rock star is the more controlled person and better at PR compared to the author. And lastly, I obviously had to research some YouTubers, as content creators are probably the most susceptible to selling out in light of the relatively lower barrier to entry and the fact that most creators don't earn very much at all. A YouTuber, Gabby Dunn, wrote a feature article in 2015 titled Get Rich or Die Vlogging, The Sad Economics of Internet Fame. In the essay, they talk about how hard it is monetarily to be a moderately successful YouTuber, but not one of those mega YouTubers like PewDiePie or Jenna Marbles, or in more modern terms, I guess, Emma Chamberlain. Dunn and their best friend, Allison Raskin, had a YouTube channel that had over 500,000 subscribers, but they still had trouble paying all their bills. Dunn talks about the pressure to do as many brand deals as possible, all the while fielding negative comments from viewers calling them sellouts, as well as the attractiveness of making rage-baked content for views, citing Nicole Arbor's Dear Fat People. Dunn writes very candidly about hysterically crying in their car because they weren't sure how they were going to make rent despite having a sizable following online. Dunn ends the essay by saying that they will either have to stop creating content for the internet or find a more traditional, quote-unquote, real job, perhaps screenwriter or by going to auditions. All of Dunn's observations really resonated with me and honestly encompass a lot of my own fears around creating content and putting things online. Like, right now, it's not a sustainable income. It's not a reliable income. It's something that I'm doing because there are some parts that I really like about it, just not the filming myself, and because I'm hoping that it can open the door to opportunities to do things that I do want to do. And as I was reading this essay, I was like, damn, I relate to all of this so much. So what did happen to them? I did some Googling and online stalking, and it turns out that Dunn's guesses as to what their future held both kind of came true. They don't post YouTube videos much anymore, just video uploads of their podcast, and they were a writer for Big Mouth and have developed TV pilots, as well as written best-selling novels and graphic novels. Basically, they managed to use YouTube as a stepping stone to a quote-unquote real job. From a purely external view, which I know can be very incomplete, like the over half a million subscribers that Dunn's channel had in 2015, they do seem to have done the thing. They have management listed on their website, a New York Times bestselling book, a long-running podcast that has gotten guests like Elizabeth Warren. All of that makes it really unclear then whether 
Gabby actually did sell out. They clearly did have to take on brand deals in order to survive, which could be selling out. But now that they're less in the brand deal space, which is the most public way of selling out, it's less obvious whether they're selling out now. They could be selling out in entertainment, right? Like writing for shows they despise but pay well or doing ad reads on their podcast from brands that they don't believe in. But unless they tell us, we really just don't know. It's kind of like my previous example of what selling out in law might mean. It could mean working in big law when you actually want to do legal aid, but not all big law lawyers are sellouts, right? Because some of them wanted to work in big law, even though some members of the broader public might call them sellouts regardless in the way that we're all sellouts if we labor for corporations, which honestly is the only way to survive in our uber capitalistic society. But the interesting thing I find about Gabby's story is that we just don't know where they landed on selling out. Of course, I haven't extensively listened to their podcast and maybe they talk about it more on there, but for the most part, Gabby could be selling out behind the scenes or maybe could have found a way to not sell out at all. We just don't know. What I get from Gabby's story is that there is a distinct quality to brand deals that draws the ire of the public eye more so than other ways of selling out, even though the other ways of selling out might be more lucrative, less ethical, and even more deceptive. I don't really think there is a meaningful difference integrity-wise between a creator earning money from a brand deal and a creator earning money from doing an ad read on a podcast. The creator could really believe in the brand, right? And it wouldn't actually be selling out. Or the creator could absolutely despise the company they're doing an ad read for on their podcast, and it could be selling out. And the only difference really between the two is how the audience, the viewer, you, me, perceives it. And I am totally guilty of this too. Even as someone who does the occasional brand deal and knows how important they are to a creator's financial livelihood, I do tend to scroll immediately past paid partnerships on TikTok, even though I know that the paid partnership takes effort, time, represents the potential livelihood of the creator. But there's a reflexive impulse to pull away, to not click or double tap on the labeled spawn con, to scroll away quickly, that I don't feel as much when a creator does an ad read in the middle of a podcast or a YouTube video. It's the same thing pretty much, the same selling out or not selling out, but it still feels different as a viewer. I was trying to interrogate this more. like. Why exactly did I feel differently about brand deals, which are essentially outsourced advertising and marketing functions of a company versus ad reads, which are honestly usually more boring, corporate and formulaic. Where I landed on was this, was that it's really two things, right? First, the expectations versus reality of the platform. And second, the in your face nature of brand deals versus the more hidden nature of ad reads. On the first point, expectations versus reality, the platforms and mediums of creation online are just structured differently, and as a result, they create different expectations for creators. We basically expect ads on podcasts, perhaps due to podcasting similarities with radio. And even for YouTube videos, the longer format makes it easier to stomach a 30 to 120 second ad read in the middle. Of course, there is a certain ratio that needs to be respected and even long form can be seen as selling out if it feels like there's too many ads per real minute of content. On the other hand, what makes short form platforms like TikTok and Instagram different is the emphasis on scrolling, on being fed content without having to do a single thing. The feed isn't just one creator's videos, it's a mishmash of a ton of creators' videos, which means that scrolling past one ad feels the same to viewers as skipping a podcast ad read, but for the creator, the difference is monumental. A skipped ad on TikTok means that the creator will have to worry about future brand deals and videos, whereas a skipped ad on a podcast means that the creator still knows that they have the audience's attention for the rest of the episode. 
TikTok has really trained its users to expect something for you all the time, even if we don't give back to creators in any way. We don't even have to follow someone to get their videos on our feed all the time. It's kind of a perfect utopia for media consumption in a way, but certainly a dystopia for digital media creation. On the second point, the in-your-face nature of brand deals versus the subtler and more hidden nature of ad reads, this actually reminded me of the kerfuffle around Kim Kardashian's 40th birthday party in 2020. If you remember, it was during the peak days of the pandemic before any vaccines, and Kim tweeted about feeling so humbled and blessed to be able to celebrate her 40th birthday on a private island with 40 of her closest family and friends. Probably to preempt criticism, she added that this private island event was only possible after two weeks of multiple health screens and asking everyone to quarantine, and saying that she surprised her closest inner circle with a trip to a private island where we could pretend things were normal just for a brief moment in time. Now, this tweet sent Twitter into a tizzy, and while most people agreed that the tweet was tone deaf in light of the, well, global pandemic that was killing hundreds of thousands of people and isolating millions others, it was really unclear whether people were angrier about the fact that Kim had flown her friends to a private island during COVID or the public display of Kim having done so. I mean, I guess this was what happens in our technologically advanced society, where spectacle and simulacra are everyday projections that we must contend with. Not only do we have to think about whether we want to do something, but we also have to think about whether we want to show it publicly and what showing it means above and beyond just doing the act itself. And that's how brand deals kind of feel to me. Like it's one thing to work for a company doing their advertising behind the scenes, but it's another thing to do advertising for a company and then publicly post it for others to see on your own account. If influencers worked in Shein's advertising and marketing department, right, creating ads and posting them, we would interpret it very differently. The spectacle of their creation in that context is different from the spectacle of their creation when the same influencers make ads as contractors and post the ads on their own accounts, even if the substance of the act is virtually the same as between the two. Like, that's kind of weird to me. I, I know it is different, it feels different, but it's also very weird to me that it does end up feeling so different. What is the difference, really, between an influencer making 20000 from a sponsored post and a marketing employee receiving, like, an exorbitant salary? I don't know. Let's say half a million from making ads for their employer. Of course, there's the fact that companies are less likely to pay their marketing employees that much, but suspending that disbelief, it seems to me that the major difference between these two people is just how obvious this earning of money is and whether the person made a spectacle out of the act. Ad reads in the middle of long-form content, of course, are still spectacles in a way, but quieter spectacles due to their surroundings, like Kim going on her private island birthday, but only including a few seconds of the event in a 2020 montage or something. It still happened, yes, but the presentation of it is different in such a way that we interpret the event differently. This is all to say that not only is there the decision for creators on whether to sell out, but there's a question of how exactly to sell out. What is a palatable way of selling out? We're not only concerned with binaries here, but also degrees when it comes to selling out. I admit that I still haven't figured out whether and how I want to sell out, but I do suspect that I will probably have to do some form of selling out next year. After all, that's the reality of late stage capitalism and my sabbatical fund is running out. I'll just have to see how I want to sell out and what forms of selling out will be acceptable to you guys, if any. And if there aren't any acceptable forms of selling out, then hey, YouTube, are you hiring for a product or a privacy council? Call me.
And that is all for this episode and this season. If you've stayed with me throughout all this, thank you so, so much for listening and being patient with me while I tried new things and messed around. I'm not sure what the future of this podcast will look like in the future, but if you've enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe, as that does give me valuable insight into what's providing value for you, and then I can hopefully do it more. To keep up with updates on this podcast, my videos, and other projects like my book, head on over to my Substack and Instagram, both linked below, which will be the first portals for all notices and announcements. And thank you again for spending some of your precious time with me and my thoughts. I can't tell you how much I genuinely appreciate it, and I can't wait to regroup and figure out how to be a better creator for y'all in 2023. This year has been an absolute roller coaster, and I am so grateful to y'all for sticking by me the entire way. Happy holidays and happy new year.